0: Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from EU tax reforms to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Check out PwC's Policy on Demand news platform that provides in-depth insights and analysis on tax policy developments. Policy on Demand is now available for free at policyondemand.pwc.com. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're at PwC's EMEA International Tax and Legal Academy in Madrid, Spain, where I'm excited to be joined by Edwin Visser. Edwin is PwC's European tax policy leader. Prior to joining PwC, Edwin was the Deputy Director General for Tax Customs Policy and Legislation and Director for Direct Taxes at the Dutch Ministry of Finance. Edwin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, uh, Dr. So Edwin, before we dive into EU taxation, and we certainly have a lot to cover in this 30 to 35 minutes, an important first question. French fries, chips, frites, friten, how do we say French fries? Yeah, frites in Dutch. Yeah. Frites in Dutch, okay. What is your go-to topping for French fries?
1: Yeah, I'm a mayo kind of guy, but with a Swiss twits, a twist in it, a bit of mustard in it. But okay, uh, that's yeah. like a, yeah. the Swiss version of The Swiss uh, version of mayo? mayonnaise, yes. Okay.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, for 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 my listeners that have seen the movie *Pulp Fiction*, um, I think it educated a lot of Americans that the Dutch enjoy mayo on their ketchup. And visiting Amsterdam and the Netherlands many times, I can confirm that. But I will say that I'm a ketchup guy. when I'm in the Netherlands, I, I go with mayo. But apparently, I need to try the Swiss version of the mayo. You should. Yeah. All right. So, some some important cultural stuff for our for our listeners. So. Let's dive into... It might be
1: helpful to we discuss the European agenda on tax, yeah. That's All right. A, I, I
0: had a feeling you might be more comfortable with that topic. So, yeah, maybe. So, yeah, so, maybe. so let's dive in. So we have a whole lot to cover. And I think, Edwin, one of the real challenges for taxpayers and advisors is just the sheer volume of proposals and changes that we're seeing, um, you know, not just in the EU, but around the globe. And so really wanted to spend some time with you today just kind of providing almost a highlight reel, Mm. if you want to call it that, of various EU tax initiatives that listeners should be aware of. And I think it's important that our listeners understand that these, these proposed, some of them proposals, some of them actual law that's going to be implemented is really relevant for anybody that operates in the EU, whether you're an EU parented company or parented somewhere else and operate in the that's EU. That's true.
1: This is not confined to EU companies. This is, has a broad impact on all companies. Yeah.
0: All right. So, so let's start our flyby with the country by country EU directive. Um, tell us a little bit about that, and I think importantly, listeners who've been, frankly, spending a lot of time thinking about country by country reports in the context of Pillar Two, which which we'll cover a little bit later in the podcast. Mm. Pillar Two, specifically in the EU, um, but but the, the the need for taxpayers to publish that in the uh, in the EU. So tell us a little bit about, about yeah,
1: that. Yeah, the directive has been adopted. It needs to be transposed, like every directive, into national legislation of the member states. That has to be done by the end of June uh, this year. Uh, So June of 2023. June of 2023, yeah. Romania is a bit ahead of the game. It already has transposed the Directive into national law. And in Romania, the obligation to publish will start on January 1 next year. So that's a bit earlier than the Directive requires. So what the Directive requires is the publication of um, disaggregated data uh, for all subsidiaries and branches in EU member states, but also for subsidiaries and branches outside the EU if those subsidiaries and branches are in a blacklisted country that refers to the blacklist that is uh, published every half year by the European Council
0: and when is that when is that required when is it required for EU companies to actually disclose and publish
1: as of from most companies when they have their fiscal year uh, the same as the calendar year as of January 1 2025 okay
0: And so I think what's important is that I think many taxpayers are spending additional time with their country-by-country reports in the context of Pillar 2, thinking Mm -hmm. about the safe harbors and making sure that they have qualifying country-by-country reports. And I think this is just another reason for taxpayers as well as advisors to really spend some time with the country-by-country reports and understanding that those are going to be disclosed um, and, and
1: ultimately published. They will be published, yes, absolutely. And it's for corporate income tax only and not for all taxes, but corporate income tax only. Okay so that may be a good nuance to add to this. Okay.
0: um, so we'll uh, we'll we'll see how how that potentially influences uh, taxpayer behavior, but uh, certainly something to, to to keep an
1: eye. But on. But, like pillar two, you have to start thinking about this now, you know, and get your data uh, together, to you know, to get your data right in order to be able to publish. And what's more important, I think, think about your narrative. Just publishing data, I think can be risky because data only can be misinterpreted, I think by many people. so, that's also the message to clients by us: get your narrative on your tax strategy, your tax position, get that in order, you know, because that's the voiceover is very important with the data that you will publish.
0: Yeah, and that that the data point okay. has been obviously a really big topic of conversation here on the cross-border tax talks podcast, mm. specifically related to to, to pillar two. Yeah, absolutely, and it's an equal challenge for taxpayers that are trying to do those country-by-country reports and really having that process and. Um, I do think that the, this publication requirement, in addition to the, the safe harbors with Pillar 2, is going to cause more companies to spend a little bit more time and diligence making sure, again, that they have qualifying country-by-country yeah, reports. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about um, kind of something else that I think is even more relevant is the carbon border adjustment mechanism. Is it CBAM? C-B-A-M? Yeah,
1: that's the acronym. And what you will see is that the European Tax Policy Agenda is full of acronyms. We'll get back to BFIT and DEBRA and oh, all the stuff later Lots on. of acronyms. Lots of acronyms. But I think CBAM is important to touch on shortly because it's imminent. Uh, what is CBAM? That's a mechanism that is aiming to prevent carbon leakage from the EU to non-member states, so third countries. And what the mechanism will do, it's called a mechanism, it's a euphemism I think for tax or okay. levy, will do is uh, tax products that will enter the EU and that have a certain carbon content with a certain levy. And part of that levy will be an own resource for the European Commission to fund its own activities, for example the resilience and recovery package. We'll get back to that when we talk about Pillar 1, I assume we talk about Pillar 1 mm-hmm. later on. and. In October 2023, it's important because then the reporting obligation starts. The effective payments, the cash out payments will start only as of January 1, 2026. So there's still some time, but here again, you have to get your act together to prepare for gathering the data to make sure you know what products will fall in scope of this CBAM uh, levy uh, and how to report. So that is, I think, the important message on CBAM. Okay,
0: yeah, an import tariff, um, I'm not sure how many that was on.
1: Yeah, the commission is quite confident that this is compatible with the WTO rules, but le- let's see, let's see. Okay. You can have various opinions, like like all legal opinions, of course, but... Uh,
0: right, yeah. yeah, that is a common topic for some of the various yes, U.S. Absolutely. initiatives, absolutely. As, yeah, yeah. as you well know, on WTO compatibility. I think there's There are one, some issues, yeah, yeah. I think if there's one thing that we know is that that takes a long time to absolutely. litigate. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. A really long time to litigate. Okay, so moving on um, to FSR again in our alphabet soup of acronyms, or the, foreign Subsidiaries Regula- or the foreign subsidies regulation. What tell us a little bit about FSR? And we've spent some time, although I think many episodes ago, talking about yeah. EU state aid. But give us a little context of what the foreign. Um, about what the FSR
1: is yeah EU State aid is a nice segue into the foreign subsidies regulation. it's a regulation that's important to distinguish from the directive because it's directly applicable in the member states. so it doesn't need to be transposed into domestic legislation and it will apply as of 12 July this year so a very short time to prepare for this. and what is it it's in fact the EU applying the EU stated framework uh, to financial contributions. Provided by non-EU countries of which the proceeds are used for investments in the EU. That can be an investment in an asset, that can be a deal, it can be a merger, it can be a takeover. Um, and in some cases, there's a notification obligation, so you have to notify uh, that you have received some subsidies and it can be any form. It can be a tax incentive, it can be a grant, it can be a loan. There's a very wide wide scope of. The definition of financial contribution and it's important because the Commission is having some well powers to to apply redressive measures to companies that can be you know either paying back part of the subsidy uh, that can be by asking the company you know to sell a bit of the business for example they took over because otherwise the level playing field will be distorted so the ramifications are I think potentially enormous. I think this regulation was written against China in the past, right, because China provides lots of subsidies and tax incentives to companies, and those incentives are also used for investments abroad. Now this has an impact, I think, on the US too, and US companies using the incentives and subsidies of the Inflation Reduction Act. So, so some of the green energy credits. The green for energy example. credits, for example, yeah. So you have to carefully analyze. You know, have you received the subsidy, any financial contribution? is there a link with the investment in Europe, it can be a takeover, and what's, for example, when you're doing a takeover and you have to analyze this data for a five-year look-back period. So you have to look back five years if any any proceeds that you received from the foreign government are used for this investment in Europe. So that's quite a challenge for the deals people, but also for the people working on the Inflation Reduction Act, for example.
0: And, and what are the consequences if a taxpayer is doing a deal um, and they have taken advantage of certain incentives, um, as defined by these FSR rules, or what are those, the consequences for, for taxpayers?
1: Well, one of them is that you could end up in a situation where you have to pay back uh, part of that incentive, not to the U.S. government, but to the European Union. Right, and I think
0: that's what is, frankly, uh, a little uh, bewildering and, and concerning, I guess, yeah. as an advisor and for taxpayers, is that if they have received a incent- if they've received an incentive from some other foreign government, yeah. and they're one of these triggering mechanisms, so a deal, I think you had mentioned, would be one of the potential triggering mechanisms. Then it
1: could, for example, yeah. But the commission, uh, well, paying back the subsidies, one one measure, but also the commission can ask you know to reduce the capacity of the company or the market presidents presence of the company in the European Union. So there are various measures. But it's it's you know really impactful, I think, you know, for certain situations. So for all companies investing in Europe, I think this should be part of the conversation when we talk to those clients. And how will how do
0: taxpayers know what incentives could potentially be triggered? Because there are obviously all kinds of incentives. You mentioned the Green Energy Credits yeah. from the Inflation Reduction Act. Is like foreign derived intangible income, for example. Um, you mentioned some of the incentives in China. How well, do you- ta- those
1: are very good questions, and we don't know the answers yet to that. I think you know the scope is very wide, so any financial contribution could be in scope. Uh, so even maybe FDI, 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 uh but we're not sure yet. So no, and, and in the pre-notification procedure, that means that we have a conversation with the client, with the commission on the on the deal that is that is coming up. You know, and whether there's a an issue. Uh, so that has to be developed, I think, you know, the further interpretation and definition of what exactly is a financial contribution that is in scope of this, of this regulation. And and what can we expect?
0: Will the EU provide a list of, of certain incentives? Or, I mean, what, what can that we would anticipate? be
1: great, but I, I'm not sure yet. What I know, what we hear is that the Commission is building up a fairly large team, a fairly large team to deal with this. So it's taken very seriously. Uh, so if... One company would hope, you know, this would not be applied, then I think that that would be vain hope. So this is a serious topic for the Commission, and it should be a very serious topic for us when we have client conversations with non-EU clients who are investing in in the European Union. Okay,
0: and when when did you say that these rules become effective?
1: Uh, 12 July this year. 12 July of 2023. And 12 October 2023, the notification requirements Mm -hmm. enter into force. So it's really, really short term
0: timely for, for both taxpayers and advisors to, to understand this and understand the, the, the potential risk. And you, you, you do wonder, will it potentially impact deal value? And Absolutely.
1: And, and only at, at PwC, we only realized, I think, later in the process, how, what impact and what ramifications this regulation could have on, on clients and on investments. Certainly when the IRA was uh, legislated in the U.S., you know, it, it exacerbates all the ramifications and the consequences of this, of this regulation.
0: Right. And, and I mean, I keep mentioning pillar two, but, you know, the U.S. certainly believed when they added these additional green energy incentives, that that was incentivizing, you know, U.S. taxpayers and non-U.S. taxpayers to invest in the U.S. I think that obviously was not on their minds that both under potentially pillar two and now with this FSR, that you know those incentives could effectively or economically be clawed back by by other jurisdictions.
1: Yeah and that create could create tensions, I think, between the US and European Union, Uh, like like applying the UTPR, but we'll come back to that later to US companies, to US multinationals. Yeah, and we've definitely spent some
0: time talking about that and we saw, you know, with uh the DST in France, you know how at least the prior administration, the Trump administration, imposed tariffs and, and yeah. on on Fra- on France and
1: except on champagne, I think it was
0: it. So, yeah, except no. French wine was excluded. Yeah, yeah. So mm. I think that that was those were those were excluded from the from the tariffs. But you do wonder that with between pillar two FSR that you know if that could be on the you know additional responses by the U.S. similar to what we saw with the French DST, yeah. it could be on the horizon.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: All right, so um, the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive, apparently we're on ATAD 3 now, um, and it's referred to as the unshell Directive. What is ATAD 3, Edwin?
1: Well, there's a whole lot to tell about that, I think. Uh, It's a draft directive that was published last year, and it aims to combat the use of shell companies in the European Union. That's important to make this distinguishment because we'll talk later about SAFE and that's an initiative aimed at combating shell companies outside the EU. This is for shell companies inside the EU and the draft directive as we have seen it and we commented on as PwC had quite a complicated substance threshold test to establish whether a company is a shell company or not. and if. One would conclude even after rebuttal that the company is a shell company, there are some consequences. Uh, one of them is that there is a reporting obligation, but also there are tax consequences to it. So a tax, uh, residence certificate can be denied by member states, that's what the directive said. We think and believe this is not compatible with the treaties that uh, mm-hmm. countries concluded. And some treaty benefits could also be denied, that was the idea, uh, some benefits could Uh, connected to the Parent Subsidiary Directive, to the Interest Royalty Directive could also be denied. So a whole host host of tax consequences. There was a lot of comments on on the Draft Directive, Uh, mainly also the complication of the uh, the complicated uh, substance test, but also it didn't make any distinction between SPV shell companies uh, mainly used for gaining tax benefits and special purpose vehicles you have in a company or in a group for legal reasons, for commercial reasons, whatever you have. So that was a big comment, I think. So the Council, because the Commission, that's the mechanism it works, how it works in the European Union, the Commission, European Commission, proposed a directive, and so It's now in the hands of the Council, and the Council, that's the gathering of the fi- ministers of finance of the member states, are now in the working groups discussing a revision of this draft directive. And what we hear is that, The substance test will be changed, will be a little bit different than the ones we have seen in the Draft Directive. Uh, There will be tax consequences, we have various rumours about it, so we're not sure what we will end up with, and there will be a reporting obligation. Uh, Timing-wise, we don't expect this to enter into force before January 1, 2025, while the original Directive aimed at being implemented at January 1, 2024, and in the proposed directive there was a two two year look back period and now we're we're hearing that there's only a one year okay. Uh, and and how
0: was it, how do they define a shell company? What is a shell? Because you had mentioned that you know there there were comments provided by PwC as as well as others on you know the, the substance requirement but generally what what, what is a, a shell company?
1: Yeah I think it was a quite a broad definition. If you are below some substance requirements that could be Payroll levels that could be people that could be having an office, etc., etc. That that you're quite easily, you know, labelled as a shell company under the definition. There's a rebuttal in the original directive, but there were no criteria for that rebuttal. So I think you were sort of in the hands of the tax administration, um, who says, well, we think you know you're still a shell company or not. So that was vagueness. I think that that well, that's not good tax policy, because you need to provide provide as much tax certainty as you can, I think, to taxpayers. Yeah, I think one of the things, a common theme that we
0: see amongst policymakers and, and others kind of outside of the those of us that practice international tax is, uh, uh, frankly, maybe a, a lack of appreciation for the fact that often investors want to set up a legal entity as an investment vehicle mm-hmm. um, so that they can rather... For example, you know, for, yeah. For, for example, and it's, it's referred, you know, I think commonly an SPV, a, a special purpose vehicle, um, it has negative connotations, but it's really a group of investors that yeah. are putting together a legal entity to then invest in something else. And by you know, its nature, it may not have any substance other than acting as the investment vehicle to then invest in other, for example, European or other subsidiaries. And it sounds like those, you know, that's just one example that could potentially get caught up in these rules.
1: Yeah, for example, real estate investors in Europe, for example, from outside uh, the EU, they often have their substance, their, their staff in one entity, for example, in Luxembourg, and they have special purpose vehicles, propcos, per property. Right. Which do not have, you know, staff or anything else. So then this directive would have as a consequence potentially that you would ask and require those businesses to reallocate their staff to the various prop companies, you know, in order to meet the requirements of this uh, directive, while having a property company per investment is not right. predominantly tax women. So that, that is really a consequence that we addressed also in our submission to the Commission. Uh, hopefully this will be addressed in the revised directive, but we're not sure yet. It's, it's apparently quite complicated. The Swedish presidency, we have rotating presidencies in the in European Union. Mm-hmm. Right now Sweden is the president of the European Union. Is working on a compromise. We hear that there will be some informal discussion maybe in May on this revised directive, but it will not be finalized, we think, under the Swedish presidency, presidency but under the Spanish presidency. Who will take over the helm as of uh, July one this year? Okay, so July twenty twenty
0: three, we have the change from Sweden to to Spain, and, and remind listeners because we saw this, we, we followed very closely the EU directive for for pillar two. Um, but maybe remind listeners kind of what is required to be able to to get a, a directive because I think we need unanimous consent from the EU for the directive to get passed, and then I think you had mentioned earlier each jurisdiction has to to actually go through their own legislative process to enact those rules.
1: Yeah, you have two legislative procedures in the European Union, the normal one that requires qualified majority voting, including uh, a majority of 65 uh, percent of the inhabitants of the European Union, and you have the special legislative procedure that's for most tax legislation, and that requires unanimity by the member states in the council.
0: And does the, does the ATAD-3, the unshell fall in the second category requires yeah. the unanimous yeah. consent?
1: But, for okay. example, we talked about public CBCR. That was an amendment to the accounting directive, so that was decided upon by qualified majority voting. Okay. And that's, you know, what you see the Commission trying to push the limits on, trying to get, you know, tax legislation under the normal legislative procedure so that you only need qualified majority voting, which is much more simple, I think, to get a directive adopted in the European Union. Right. And but there's always some resistance from, from member states to that. Right.
0: Okay, so so let's move on to BFIT, which is Business in Europe, the Framework for Income Taxation. And is it uh, a fair... <laughs> Characterization to call this the CCCTB 2.0 or the Common Consolidated Corporate Tax Base is this really the next generation of that or am I yeah, oversimplifying?
1: No, you're, you're right. This is the triple C to be resuscitated, I think. Okay, but I'm not sure this this attempt to resuscitate will will be successful.
0: So so why, why don't we start with what Maybe was the Maybe get back, back yeah, up a little bit. Yeah. Let's back up. What was the Cuz I remember I mean I've been doing this for almost 25 years and I think it was around 2000, you can correct me, is where there was this this discussion in the EU about a corporate a common tax base. Yeah,
1: that's exactly what it is, you know. One tax base for corporate tax in the European Union on a consolidated basis. And then the second leg of it is of course, how do you allocate this consolidated profit to the member states? And that was based on a formula, assets, staff, etc. You know, the very traditional. Right. What uh, we see in the criteria. U.S. in state tax, yeah. oftentimes. Yeah. So a lot of resistance by member states at the time, I think. Uh, do I have and, the timing about right? Was it like early, like early 2000s? Yeah. Yeah, a bit, bit later. But you know, okay. it, it has been pending for a while, and okay. it was never. Uh, the Commission was never successful to get uh, unanimity on, on that one, and mainly because many member states you know, lost quite a, a lot of revenue. So national parliaments right. of a number of countries pulled the yellow card, that's a certain procedure, and said, well, this is not going to happen, so... Triple C is that, but I think the Commission has now been inspired by Pillar One, Pillar Two, mm-hmm. right? because there you know you use financial accounting to determine the tax base. Yeah, it's a Pillar common one. tax base for uh, sure. It's a common tax base, and there is a well fractional apportionment in in Pillar One for excess profits, so that inspired the Commission, I think, to come up with this B fit, and well the aims are sort of commendable, you know, reduce complexity, make life easier for business. But that this sounds is, good in theory. That sounds good in theory, but you know, with such an overwhelming EU agenda and all the complex changes um, uh, taxpayers have to deal with, I think this is adding to complexity instead of reducing complexity. And what it also does is that you have a third system of allocating profits. We have the arms length principle, we have formula apportionment on the Pillar 1, if that ever happens, for excess profits. And then we have BFIT with its criteria for allocating profits within the EU, but... For transactions between subsidiaries in member states and subsidiaries in non-member states, you still need to apply Pillar 1 and the Youngslink Principle. So it's, it's adding to the very complex landscape. And I frankly think taxpayers, our clients, but also tax administrations are not going to be able to cope with this. It's too much at the same time.
0: So where where are we on, on the process? Is this just a proposal
1: and they've they've sought No, uh, there's a call for evidence. Okay. Uh, we reacted briefly on, on that as P W C and we expect a proposal in October. So what is the difference
0: between what is a, a call for evidence? A call for evidence and then talk a little bit what how does that
1: process yeah, work? Because many no, of these have already been that's this. normally a very brief note. Two okay. or three pages, you know, sketching what is the issue, what's the question we have, what are the aims we have uh, to refer to them, yeah, reducing complexity, making life easier for taxpayers, providing more certainty, and what are the policy options? And then they put out a submission, and so everyone. And can, who's they? Uh, the Commission, sorry, okay. the European Commission. Let's be precise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the website, have your say website, and everyone can react on that uh, consultation request. And from global tax policy, we, as a principle, by default, we react on all consultations mm-hmm. of the European Commission on taxation.
0: So we start with the consultation. Yeah, and then that's we'll, the call for
1: evidence, and then, well, the, the next step will be a proposal for directive, and there need to be an impact assessment, you know, to underpin that directive, and we expect that in October. Okay,
0: and and then, assuming this would need to move forward, going back to our prior discussion, for this to become law, we would then need this proposal to be then move into a directive. And you would need unanimous consent, yeah, presumably, yeah, for yeah, this?
1: Yeah. What we hear in Brussels is that, you know, there is skepticism by many member states, also driven by the fear that they will lose revenue, but also, you know, driven by the fact that this is too much at the same time. And that's what we also said, you know, let's wait f- and assess, you know, the impact of Pillar 2 first before we start a new adventure, because this this is, well, let's try to find a polite word for it, but this is, too much at the same time. Oh maybe. yeah. yeah so. Well,
0: I mean that was one of the the concerns and going back, you know, several years when, I mean even a couple of years, as Pillar Two started to pick up steam, mm. you know, we had the anti-tax avoidance directive, frankly one and two in the EU with some of the interest limitation rules, CFC rules, anti hybrid rules, and we never really let the dust settle on that mm. before Pillars One and Pillar Two came in. Yeah, so that's, um, You know, and a lot of those initiatives, particularly under ATAD 2, had the very similar policy objectives as as Pillar 2. I'm not sure we'll ever know sort of that economic, I guess we'll have a couple of years of potential economic impact from a tax perspective, knowing what was the consequence of ATAD 2 before Pillar 2 came in. Um, But just seems like a lot of of new initiatives trying to address the same thing without, and again, this isn't just unique to the EU, but... Um, particularly with BFID, just seems less, uh, you know... With and again, a, what we understand, you know,
1: that the speed to to come up with a proposal is driven by the need for own resources, right? because the EU leaders agreed up on a very extensive, huge resilience and recovery package in 2020 of 750 billion euros, and that needed to be funded by own resources for the European Union. So first, they had the idea to use the digital services tax for that. That idea was abandoned, then digital levy. Now they're counting on Pillar 1, especially... Uh, The additional revenues will be their own resource. But I think, you know, uh, as that will not happen, they need other ideas for their own resources. And and this is one of them.
0: It's a great practical point, It's a great practical point, but it's... Yeah, but like the the point that, listen, governments need money. And so they are going to continue to look to new and additional initiatives to try to raise raise those funds. Yeah,
1: but governments get money and countries get money. This is additional. The European Commission, the European Union needs their own resources, and that is quite new, and that creates a new dynamic in the European Union.
0: Fair point. Um, In other words, just to, to state that back, that well, each country has its own fisc, obviously, and its own financial obligations, but now this collection of countries also has to fund the EU, Right, this larger body, it's a collection of these various, and so not only do individual countries need to raise the money, but these individual countries effectively need to raise the money to be able to support and fund the EU, or the EU otherwise needs to
1: collect yeah. that money. Yeah, Now we even hear rumors about a toll tax for certain companies, uh, a rumor about a crypto tax is floating in Brussels. Wait,
0: what's a toll tax?
1: That's a tax on certain infrastructures, technical infrastructures. I see. We don't know yet much about it. But that's some rumors that are floating in Brussels, you know, also in the context of how can we find our own resources for the European Union. Got it. And that will make the landscape even more complex than it already is.
0: Okay. Well, we'll, we'll certainly continue to keep an eye on this with BFID. Yeah, we'll absolutely. See, we'll, absolutely. We'll see if it goes the same direction as the ccc and or if this will um, continue to, to, to move forward. All right. So the next one I wanted to move to was the acronym that they referred to as SAFE which is Securing the Activity Framework of Enablers. It seems like in the, in the spirit, kind of following sort of U.S. Congress with GILTI um, and our BEAT regimes, kind of these forced acronyms. So Securing the Activity Framework of Enablers. So w- what, is, what is SAFE and what does that mean, Edwin?
1: Well, uh, as I said before, you know, this has the origin in the idea of combating the use of shell companies outside the European Union. And, of course, the European Union doesn't have any jurisdiction outside of the EU, so that's hard to, uh, well, combat shell companies from a legal point of view. So For those shell
0: companies that are outside the EU. Outside Union. the EU. Yeah.
1: So they come up with this idea. It's not the idea to regulate the tax profession, but it's the idea to regulate certain activities of enablers. And I find enablers a very ugly word, I must say. Uh, Agreed. Uh, intermediaries would be appropriate. Right. So again, here we saw a call for evidence with four options in it, a due diligence procedure, an e-registration, and a code of conduct. There's a fourth option, but that's less important. Okay. So, and everything or every option hinges on the ability to come up with a definition of aggressive tax planning. So planning that is legal as such, but undesirable. That's how I frame aggressive tax planning. Okay. So we did a very in-depth analysis and said, well, any definition of aggressive tax planning, which in in itself is legal, so any definition is against the principle of legality. So the Commission is now thinking of getting to an ex-ante definition of aggressive tax planning, but also to come up with a list of arrangements that would fall into scope of aggressive tax planning. It would apply only to tax advisors, tax advisors outside of the EU, So not to lawyers, not to asset managers, not to fund managers, so only to tax advisors, only outside outside the EU. Uh, And the Commission said in some conversations they think of creating a list of more than 10,000 arrangements in the next few years. As a consequence, if you would advise as a non-EU tax advisor uh, on these arrangements, you would be deregistered from the register. And clients using that advice could also get penalties. So it's not only important for PwC and the likes, but also for companies because they could get penalties using tax advisors that are not in the register or using arrangements that are on that list. That's what we hear right now. So where is this in the process, and what, what do we expect for, for we ex- timing? We expect this? a proposal in June, maybe a little bit later. Uh, and we hear that the proposal will be done on the normal legislative procedure, so that will just need qualified majority voting.
0: Okay, because it's not really a, a income tax. Yeah, you can
1: debate whether that is okay. or not, you know, and, and probably some member states will be against that, so let's see how that works out. What's important to understand, too, is that the Commission has only limited time to agree upon this with the Council and the Parliament, because the mandate of the Commission ends uh, in May or June next year, because then there will be uh, elections of the European Parliament, and so there will be a new European Parliament, uh, and the new commission later on in 2024.
0: Yeah, so how does, just I, I, I want to double click on the elections that, that you had mentioned next year, how will can, how does that work insofar as, how does that impact sort of the direction of tax policy and initiatives um, with respect to, to, to those elections?
1: Yeah, what we see if we look at predictions, uh, and every citizen in the European Union can directly vote for the European Parliament. Uh, around 700 seats in European Parliament. Uh, bigger member states have large re- representation like Italy, France, Spain, mm-hmm. Poland, not to forget. Um, and what we see in the predictions, what they're worth, is that we see a slight shift to a uh, more center-right uh, parliament. That doesn't always mean that we'll end up you know, with different tax policies because mm-hmm. some of the center-right and right-wing parties have really progressive economic agendas mm. and tax agendas. So that is difficult to predict right now, you know, how that exactly will look like. But I don't expect a really big change, you know, if I see uh, the members of parliament who are likely to be elected and have the ambition, you know, to continue in their positions, for example, as the chair of the fiscal Committee, uh, I don't think, you know, the direction of travel and, and the tone of voice in the parliament will really change. Okay. So
0: I, I do want to get to pillar one and pillar two, but maybe one other, you had mentioned DEBRA. Um, what, 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 is, what is that and, and, and where are we um, in r- related to that?
1: DEBRA stands for the Debt Equity Bias Reduction Allowance. So in fact, an allowance on equity, but it's financed by getting, you know, stricter interest deduction limitations. That's a short, DEBRA, um, strange idea. You know, certainly, if you have BFIT floating around, because I would say Debra would be part of BFIT. Right. Uh, but it's costing, going to cost member states a lot of money. For example, the Netherlands, uh, because the Netherlands has more stricter interest limitation right. deduction rules than other countries. Um, so it cannot finance the allowance for corporate equity. So what we hear is that this is sort of dead in the water.
0: Okay. The, it, ir- the irony that I always thought with Deborah is the policymakers <laughs> effectively allowing an interest expense deduction on equity, which feels a bit like a hybrid type deduction. We are getting a deduction on equity. I certainly understand the policy. Of-
1: yeah, if you if you think you only want to tax economic rent, then it then it makes sense. But it's you know it's a budgetary bleeder for many countries. Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. All right, so so let's move on to, to, to pillars one and yeah. and pillar two um, specifically from from an EU lens perspective, and we know that from a pillar two, which we'll come back to, um, has we've got a directive passed, and now we're anxiously awaiting jurisdictions to to implement those rules and see what those look like. But where are we on pillar one in the EU?
1: That begins with the question: Where is the OCD on pillar one? And they're <laughs> still aiming at a multilateral convention, I think you know, mm-hmm. and uh, but. I think we all know and understand. You know, the U.S. will never sign up to this. Uh, certainly, if you look at the most recent letters of Jason Smith, the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, mm-hmm. from I Missouri. Think, oh, my, my yeah, home state. your home state, your yeah. home state. Yeah, I think that so pillar one is dead from my point of view. Um, but getting back to the EU, the EU intends to legislate pillar one into via a directive. Mm-hmm. I and mean, I, it and does. There's not not much more to say about that. Right. I think you know, from a EU perspective. Per okay, se.
0: it does strike me as a little bit ironic, and that the the point being, well, if the EU will, or if the US will never sign up, then this doesn't make sense. And when the US had clearly signed up for Pillar Two, we still didn't actually implement, nor will we implement it with Congress. That's
1: split, true. That's true. With <laughs>
0: Congress, um, but. Uh, um, I think that you know' we'll, you know just a tremendous amount of complexity obviously on with, with with pillar one so we'll obviously continue to follow it see what happens with the OECD uh, but uh, uh, appreciate that the, the likelihood of that it, it does feel like it's a bit on life support at this point
1: yeah and I'm not sure you know because the Commission will never admit it that that beef it may be driven also by the understanding of the Commission that pillar one will never happen but you know that's that's just uh, guessing that's just okay. guessing. Okay,
0: so then let's move to certainly last but but not, not least, not one of least, my no. favorite topics is is pillar two. Um, so we had the the EU directive, a lot of drama and news that for yeah. listeners of the podcast with Poland and Hungary, the EU directive obviously <laughs> obviously passed. And it made for great listening for my fellow tax. Nerds Absolutely, yeah, it's, a, it's sort of great entertainment. Hey, it was, a, yeah, I mean, yeah. just you know, looking at at the. You know, all the, the tax periodicals mm. every day, figuring out what was going on and what had Poland said, what has Hungary said. And, I mean, it was uh, almost a surreal experience. But the EU directive has passed. We are now waiting for, for countries to, to publish, ultimately propose, and finally enact their particular rules. Um, but there's been a number of questions with respect to the compatibility of Pillar 2 and EU law treaties come to mind and you know we'll talk a little bit about trade tensions but you know what are your views on that there's been a lot of ink spilled and i think some very technical positions particularly with respect to the under tax profit rule and that how that may apply within the within the eu but what is the current state of thinking on the compatibility of pillar 2 in eu law given that we already have a directive passed
1: yeah that's i think a very important fact we already have a directive passed i think so that Will make the likelihood that the European Court of Justice will say that there is an incompatibility less likely, I think. But that's just, you know, an opinion. Mm-hmm. There's some articles floating around, for example, of our colleague Arne Schnitker mm-hmm. on the phase-in uh, clause in the directive. Is that compatible with EU law? Question mark. Read the analysis. I would say we don't have time to right. to dig deep into that. Uh, there's also an issue, and th- the opinions vary, of course. You know whether the undertaxed payment rule is compatible with the treaties. Well, um, and I think this is at odds, you know, the undertaxed profits rule with Article 7, Article 9 of the OCD model convention, which only allows you to allocate profits to, an, uh, to a jurisdiction within the boundaries of the arms length principle right. Right, and not beyond that. So there's a real issue, I think.
0: And what is the process, um, kind of that legal process, um, for taxpayers, you know, if they were to contest or how does that work in the EU? Sort of how does the process work to determine whether something may no, violate that, no, that's the That's interesting. Well,
1: when you talk about incompatibility with the Treaty for the Function of the EU, then it's the treaty that you can end up, you know, with the European Court of Justice. But when you talk about incompatibility with the tax treaties of member states with third countries or member states, then it's the domestic court and supreme courts that will finally... Uh, have the last say on that.
0: Yeah, so it, it so re- it,
1: it can end up in various ways, you know. If, right. if if taxpayers start to litigate in various member states, you know, well, we don't. There's no guarantee on a unified conclusion on that. That yeah, depends, you know, going, right. on how the member states, you know, interpret the OCD guidance, dynamic, static, you know, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. So that is that is to be seen. But okay. it creates a lot of uncertainty. I think.
0: Yeah, and I think that is just one of the big challenges. Yeah. Is that um, taxpayers, advisors, want, want tax certainty. And I mean, we just went through uh, a, not even an exhaustive list, but a list of hopefully relevant provisions in the yep. EU with a, a tremendous amount of, of uncertainty.
1: Yeah, and when you look at, for example, the administrative guidance of the OECD, it's quite uncertain how that will be implemented in the European Union in the member states. There's quite a weak recommendation in Recital 24, I think, with the directive saying, well, this administrative guidance is a great source of... Uh, inspiration or illustration or interpretation, but what we don't hear is, you know, that member states will act and say, well, let's incorporate this administrative guidance if there's tension with the wording of the model rules and the directive into a additional directive in order to provide certainty to tax administrations and taxpayers in the European Union. So that is a great concern for me. Yeah, and, and just uh, that, it's a great
0: point, Edwin, and something I think that listeners should be aware. Of. So, when the directive was passed based on the model rules yeah. and commentary. Full stop. There was full no full administrative yeah. guidance no. at this point. So, we've already gotten it's roughly you know May twenty twenty three when this will come when this will go on air, and the we obviously have had one round of administrative guidance, which certainly made substantive yeah. changes yeah. to the model rules and commentary we hear that we could get at least another one or two rounds of administrative guidance before the end of 2023 obviously those are not included within the directive and so there's there's question will will the implementing jurisdictions in the EU just take what's specifically in the directive do they incorporate the the additional administrative guidance and then of course depending on what the legislative process is for every jurisdiction they may have to get their rules out before the final administrative guidance yeah. comes out.
1: Yeah, and I hope, you know, that member states will be sensible and say, well, if there's administrative guidance that, you know, is not a direct interpretation of the language of the model rules, you know, and maybe more extensive interpretation, let's, let's legislate that in the European Union via a newer additional directive like mm-hmm. we had with the DEC directives, uh, the Directive and Administrative com- uh, Corporations. We had various iterations. We're now at DEC 8 for example. So why not, you know, have a pillar to next version in order to incorporate this administrative guidance? And the only thing that is secured is the application of the safe harbor rules, because that is in Article 32 of the directive. But the rest of the administrative guidance, it's it's really a question mark how member states will implement this, how they will interpret this, but also how will courts at the end of the day interpret this, you know, this, this could end up in a bigger chaos than we're even in right now we need even bigger complexities and uncertainties for taxpayers yeah than, a, than we see right now so it, that, it's
0: a, it's an interesting thought and suggestion that <laughs> that we would need to have another directive on pillar two to incorporate that administrative guidance um, particularly given how well that the first round went and yeah uh,
1: get, yeah that will be a challenge yeah
0: yeah but a big challenge potentially to be able to get that unanimity um so Edwin, uh, any you know uh, advice? Just kind of general advice um, for for taxpayers. I mean, there's just there's so much going on. It's 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 amazing. I mean, there's you know international tax yeah. has always been a very dynamic field. It was one of the reasons I get into it. It's why I really enjoy it. But and listen, I am a, a you know a, a steady reader of all things international tax, and it's just really challenging to stay caught up with all these various initiatives and. What advice do you have for for taxpayers, and maybe not even just from an EU perspective, but just as an international tax advisor?
1: Yeah, pay attention to the EU agenda. It's important. I think it can be a catalyst for developments also outside the EU. For example, look at Australia, who has come up now with very far-going public country-by-country country reporting uh, legislation. But also, there's some initiatives that do not have tax, you know, in the acronym, but have a relationship with tax. For example, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, mm. there's a tax angle to it too. So the the impact of the EU agenda on taxpayers and clients is, is huge, I think. And, well, we have a good team. We can present everything that's happening in the EU to clients so to make sure that they're aware of what's happening and what could have a consequence for them doing business in the European Union. Yeah, It's overwhelming. And, and I
0: think the advice that I would give to, to taxpayers as, as well as advisors is, Get involved in the process. Like when when these policymakers, and you worked in the Dutch Ministry yeah. of Finance, you, it's want important, to, yeah. you want to hear from taxpayers, you yeah, want to hear absolutely. from advisors. What are the issues that we're missing? And I think that particularly in the EU, through the process that you described, there is that opportunity for, for yeah, taxpayers. And, and then
1: despite, that's, that's a sort of contradiction, despite the activist tone of voice sometimes of the Commission, there's really interest in the positions of business. So be involved indeed in the submissions, in the consultations, and make sure that your voice is heard directly or via MCham or via Business Europe but make sure that your voice and concerns IDs are heard I think that's that's very important all right well,
0: great advice and I think a perfect way to end it and as we continue to follow these developments Edmund we'll have you back on to to see where we end up with BFIT, amongst others and if we end up with the CCC TV yeah. 3.0 we'll uh, you'll hear it about it on the cross border tax talks
1: yeah stay tuned okay all all thanks right.
0: Well, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Edwin Visser, PwC's European Tax Policy Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast.